The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me, the niche of the niche. And on this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour, we have the type of interview that I like, and that is to say, someone that you know who they are or what they've done, but you don't know them yet. Those are the most fascinating to me. And this guest, Gary Portnoy, is that exactly. He's a singer, songwriter, recording artist, and he's written songs recorded by both himself and other artists. For example, Dolly Parton has recorded a Gary Portnoy song. However, what he's most famous for is the song that he wrote, the composition, Where Everybody Knows Your Name. To most of you, you know that as this theme song to the television sitcom Cheers. You're going to get to meet Gary Portnoy. I have to say, he makes a great interview, and I like the guy. With no further ado, let's get into the interview. Well, ladies and gentlemen, our guest, Gary Portnoy, is a singer, songwriter, recording artist, a two-time Emmy nominee. He's known to many for both co-writing and singing the theme song to the TV show Cheers, where everybody knows your name. Gary, it's a great it's a great pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me. So you're a native New Yorker? Yeah, born and bred. Born in Brooklyn, borough of New York City. Grew up on Long Island and lived in Manhattan, New York Central, for a couple of decades and now up in the wilds of the suburbs, the northern suburbs of New York. So, yeah, definitely, definitely. I've talked to a lot of people from New York through the years, and New York, people from New York are easy to talk to generally. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's that's good to know. Yeah, I think sometimes we speak before we think, but <laughs> I wish we had thought before we spoke. But, that yeah, I think it does make for easier conversation than people who are editing it editing everything on its way out. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you say people from New that York... That being said, I'm going to put my, <laughs> my my editing, a little bit of my editing uh, mechanism in place. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Yeah. What would you say people from New York are like? Oh, God, I wouldn't. That's the beauty of New York, uh, especially if we're talking about you know New York City, New York proper. The beauty of it is that uh, so many people come to New York because they're not like anybody else where they are. And uh, sometimes that's a difficult thing. Whereas in New York, you know, it's a really cliche, but, you know, nobody really... Differences don't bother people, you know. So to me, the beauty of New York is that there is no typical, you know, New Yorker. You know, stereotypes notwithstanding. Um, I think that's what makes it, for me, the, the greatest city in the world. What was life like for you growing up? Oh, it was difficult. It was it was not a, an easy childhood. There were issues of alcoholism and in my family, you know. So, and other issues as well. It, it was it was not uh, it was not a Norman Rockwell childhood growing up. But I had incredible grandparents, incredible support system, my grandma Dora, my grandpa Harry, 
and I had a piano. So those were my. That's how I. That's how I pretty much weathered my childhood on the island. I had a. Thank God, I had a support system and a piano. It's interesting you mentioned your grandparents. It seems like as as time has gone on, grandparents are becoming less and less a part of people's. Their you know, like you. People have kind of moved away from that in a way. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely true. Well, I think the whole culture and the way we treat older people, especially as people are living older and older, you know, I think there's we kind of push them more and more to the periphery as they get older and older, because it may not be that easy or convenient to care for them, and also maybe we, when I say we, I'm just speaking in society in general, don't want to look at it. You know, we don't want to watch that process that perhaps awaits us. So I think that's true. I think there's, I think there's more of a disconnect between older people and younger people now. I, I agree with you. Yeah, I think, I think that's a huge loss. I know in my life, my gosh, it would have been, you know, they were, they were priceless to me. So one day, you're four years old, your grandpa Harry is singing this Negro spiritual in the living room. Did he do that a lot? Um, no, he usually sang uh, uh, Sinatra. Nice. He uh, he just loves Sinatra. And one of my great regrets is that I didn't get Sinatra till about ten years ago. I didn't understand what all the clamor was about. You know, my grandpa tried to tell me. Not uh, my grandpa was not a musician. He didn't tell me in in eloquent words or but he he was constantly trying to get me to understand it and i didn't until about i don't know the light went on about a decade ago and uh i the way sinatra could be you know sometimes a little shaky sometimes a little off pitch but relay a lyric relate a lyric so unbelievably well but it took me you know like five decades to understand that so, but I, I credit my grandpa for he you know he he tried he kept he kept playing me Sinatra but the the Negro spiritual as it as it were uh, no I don't remember him ever singing one before or after that it, where, wherever it came from he, in fact he didn't sing very much at all but that particular day he was singing he was singing and you were able to play on the piano just exactly what he was singing yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, yes, I did. <laughs> I so did. you were born to be a musician. I guess so, yeah. I'd have to say that, because um, nothing really has ever, nothing's ever drawn my attention, other than kind of like psychology and the human psyche, which really is what, you know, art and music and songwriting are about. Nothing else has ever pulled me. <laughs> Maybe that... That sounds kind of sad, but I've never been drawn to anything else. So, yeah, I have a feeling that was what God had in mind for me. I hope so, otherwise I'd, I veered badly. <laughs> <laughs> otherwise I blew it. <laughs> so, is songwriting difficult? Um, 
Well, you know, it depends. You know, there's songwriting. I mean, it depends. Again, it's like it's like trying to describe a New Yorker. Because some songs present themselves to you almost out of whole cloth. And you marvel at how easy that was. And then there are others that you're working on. I found last year I went into a box. I was looking for something. And I found something else. I found a song that I had written in 1991 after my father passed away. It's called When My Father Was Young. And I found this song, Unfinished. I had forgotten about it. And I also realized I put it down because I just couldn't finish it. And I picked it up. And I finished it rather quickly. The music came back to me. I, I never write music down, so there was no record of the music. It came back to me instantly. And I just was able to tweak it and put some lyrics. So in my case, that's a song that took 25 years to finish, not not a constant, you know, not working on it constantly. But then there are other songs that literally sit down and they kind of write themselves. And of course, that only has to do with when you're writing by yourself. Then there's collaboration, and that's a whole other ball of wax, because then the, you know, the difficulty if there is difficulty, it's not always about the song, but about the uh, interpersonal aspect of, you know, writing something which is you know, so intimate with another person and all the stuff they bring to the table and all the stuff you bring to the table as different people. So that's a whole other, um, you know, that that's a whole other. Sometimes that's easier because when you reach a blank, they fill it in. But other times it's more difficult because you don't you're not in the, you're not on the same page no pun intended and you know one person's pulling here and one person's pulling there or you just don't like them you know you can be writing something you like and you don't like them and it's it's a whole other com- <laughs> it's a whole it's a whole other layer of issues so um that that to me is the difference between writing by oneself and co-writing do you like co-writing uh when it's at its best I, I love it and and there have been times when i've loathed it you know i had to be for one reason or another had to be in a room with someone i did not want to be in a room with and uh there's nothing worse than that you know it, it's it's you know that's it's horrible it's like trying to have an intimate relationship with someone you don't have any feelings for or you don't like or you have feelings for them and, and they're negative so you know I like it I've done a lot of it in my life and I've you know I, if I had to say yes or no do I like it yes but I like it when I like the person and I like it when the process is flowing smoothly the other thing is when you're writing yourself you make all the decisions about when to pick us pick up a song when to put it down when to when to return to it and um it's not a it's not a democracy you're the ruler of your kingdom but obviously with collaboration it's you know it doesn't work that way so uh it's a complicated answer to a simple question has there been a songwriting uh, a co-writer that you have most enjoyed working with there's not one you know i've had several that kind of defined my I, I I tended to I, I tend I didn't I did a lot of co-writing but not with a ton of people until I went to Nashville and there they change partners like you change your underwear I mean it's it's just a 
it's a very different you know the concept of co-writer in Nashville is a very different thing but in my New York main writers life I had a series of co-writers and I really I, I can't say there was one that I enjoyed the most or maybe I enjoyed them the most for a while and then I didn't <laughs> so I so I'm going to leave I'm just going to leave it at I'm going to leave it at that you know <laughs> I enjoyed it, and then, especially when you're young, you can enjoy it, and then when you don't anymore, you can try and find somebody else to to thrill you and then drive you crazy. What does it feel like the first time you hear an artist's recording of a song you write? Um, in my case, I often felt... <laughs> profound disappointment in many in many instances you know because i i don't know there's something perhaps quirky or individualistic about my writing i think very often the people who recorded them sort of tried to smooth over the wrinkles whether they did it consciously or unconsciously i don't know so very often when it got back to me i felt that it had lost some of whatever had made it special in the first place. So very often I was so thrilled to find out somebody was going to record my song, especially someone that I respected. And then when it would come back to me, I was usually I was usually disappointed. There was only one time it, there was only one time when something came back to me where I felt it had been added to, expanded upon, taken and it was a song that I wrote for fame, and it was called I Still Believe in Me. And it was written very quickly under a lot of duress, and all I ever made was a, a home piano demo. Usually I made complex demos hoping that, you know, I could kind of put my colors and on the palette. Maybe somebody would hopefully steal from me if they were going to record the song. I was hoping they would, you know... I wanted them to take what I put into it, but in this particular case, I had nothing but a, a raw piano demo and sent it out to California, and it came back and it took my breath away. And, you know, maybe it's sad that I'm this old and I've written that many songs. That's the only time that happened to me, but it was incredible. You know, it really transported me to... There were a couple of chord changes that I hadn't put in. There was an incredible orchestration... I got to feel like what it feels like when you write something and somebody takes it and puts their own spin on it and and just you know blows you away and it's an incredible feeling to get back to your question but it didn't happen to me that many times throughout my throughout my writing career What do you think I'm, is the best way to take on disappointment or to deal with disappointment well, I, that changes, I think, as you get older. You know, when I was younger, I would just, um, you know, I might uh, eat too much or drink too much or, you know, take illicit drugs. I was never a drug person. My drug use would, you know, make most people from that time and place scoff. But, you know, the point is you might try to just turn it off indulge yourself, go to a different place. 
you know, and I'm speaking about music business disappointment because there was, you know, there's so much of it. You know, there's constantly, when you're starting out, or at least when I was starting out, it's 99% disappointment. And you wonder, you know, so to me, you just try to escape, you know, to a different place and forget about it. And maybe sometimes even swear it off, but you knew you had to come back to it, which goes back to, you know, is this what I'm meant to do? You, You knew you had to come back to it and you knew you were going to come back to it, but you just you just have to get away and tell yourself that you don't have to come back to it, that it's voluntary. You know, like nobody, nobody has a gun to your head forcing you to take all this abuse that gets dished out in a business where, you know, there's 10,000 of you and 10,000 songs for every song that somebody's looking for. You know, by definition, it's just, (laughs) you're, you're volunteering yourself over to rejection. And I guess everybody has the way of coping. And of course, some people overcoped, you know, many people overcoped and, and got into all kinds of problems with substance abuse and, and, and other, you know, you know, everybody, I guess, has their own coping mechanisms. But mine was just kind of deluding myself that I didn't need this and I could leave it any time I wanted to. Hmm. There's a story on your website, GaryPortnoy.com, which is an excellent website, I might add. Oh, thanks. Yeah, lots of great, great stories and information and excerpts. Something that commonly happens, kind of speaking about disappointment, I hear from a lot of artists, they either write a song and they say, okay, we're going to cut your song, and then they hear back, yeah, we decided not to. Or even worse, I've heard from people, we recorded your song. It's not coming out. Yeah. You know, it's just going to sit there on the shelves. Yeah. And then also, people have told me, I recorded a song myself for a record label or whatever, and it's not coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a story on there about you being a huge fan of Frankie Valli. Mm, oh, gosh. Yeah. 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 Oh, uh, well, I can even predate that. I was very lucky. I got my very first wake-up call, Dose of Reality, when I was 18 years old. And I placed my first song with a publisher. And I, I, I don't think I put this story on that website. There was a group at the time called the Bay City Rollers, huge teen, teenage girl, heartthrob type of group. And they were having their surge of success. And I had just signed my first publishing deal, and my publisher told me that two of my songs were on hold with the Bay City Rollers. And as the process went on, I was told, well, they've, they've narrowed it to 30 songs. They've narrowed it to 20 songs. They've na- and your two are still in the running. you know. And, and at one point, I kid you not, I think they were down to 12 songs, and they were going to pick 10. And I was told that my two songs were still in the running. So I told everybody I knew. I told everybody who had listened, I told people that I didn't know that I was going to have at least one, you know, because what were the odds that they would be down to 12 and my two songs would be... Well, anyway, you know the end of the story without me telling you. My two songs were not cut. (laughs) And I spent the next year of my life being greeted by friends and family. So when is that Bay City Rollers record coming? So when do we get to hear... So I learned a really great lesson early on and just keep your mouth shut until you're holding it in your hand. And for years after, you know, friends would say to me, why didn't you tell us about it? And I would just go, Bay City Rollers. 
But as for Frankie Valley, yeah, that you know, I don't have a lot. Honestly, I don't have a lot of what I would call heartbreak moments. But to me, that was a, a heartbreak moment because uh, I was recording an album for Capitol Records, which wound up not being released. So this covers almost every <laughs> every circumstance that you just described. But of course, at the time, I didn't know that, and my producer didn't know it. So I was recording this album, and fabulous producer arranger named Charlie Colello was arranging my album. He had kind of given up arranging. He had become a producer, but as a favor to my producer, he was arranging my record. And I had a song called Only My Woman Knows that he arranged for me. And he was producing Frankie Valley literally in the same building in the next studio. It was the record plant in New York City. And they had an album, and at the time, you know, you were always looking for the single. Do we have the single? And and Charlie thought that my song would be a single for Frankie Valley. He played it for Frankie Valley. Frankie Valley loved it, and they decided they were going to cut it. And I was beyond... I had never had an artist record one of my songs before. I was actually recording my album before anyone had recorded one of mine. I was just beyond, beyond. And uh, my producer... <laughs> very quickly and not in the nicest way put the kibosh on it. it it was you know that is he said that is not happening you know i put he he went on to say that he had put his young career on the line signing me a 19 year old or 20 year old to a major label deal and that that song was important to the deal and there was no way that we were giving it away to anybody frankie valley or anybody else and you know it was just i i just can't tell you what that felt like. Um, on some level, I think it went on to sabotage my own record, <laughs> not, not consciously. But so that, that was the that was the most painful incident I ever experienced of somebody who I really admired and respected. You know, really an icon of the times, wanting to record one of my songs, and the you know the the painful icing on the cake was I wound up meeting Frankie Valley a couple of years later in a, in a different recording studio and we were introduced and he said, oh, oh, you're the guy. And of course, the first thing he brought up was that song and um, how he had wanted to record it. So, yeah, that's a, to me, that's about as bad as it gets. <laughs> when you have, when you're powerless and, uh, you know, a decision like that was, was made when creatively it was a go. And I really honestly kind of, you know, put it into a comfortable place. And then when Jersey Boys erupted 10 or 15 years ago, it kind of brought it back to me. It's like, it was sort of like salt on the wound again. Uh. Yeah, it's horrible. It's really, it, it is one of the true regrets of my career when I look back. Because I think that would have been a great record. We're talking with singer, songwriter, and recording artist Gary Portnoy on the flip side. In your career, when have you been the most elated? Sometimes it was just, you know, getting news that I had a record deal or something that, you know, didn't have to do with a specific creative moment or anything. Just, you know, re reaching a, a goal that you set and don't know if you're actually going to reach. But creatively, it was for, for that aforementioned song from Fame, where I finally got to hear a song of mine fleshed out and and presented in a way that that just you know it brought me joy pure joy 
beyond that, it's it's really hard. You know, I, I don't know that I've had that much elation. I think the first time I heard the Cheers record on the radio. No, the first time my dad. The first time my dad was driving on Long Island, and he heard the Cheers song on the radio, and he had to pull over. And my father was wasn't prone to great excesses of emotion, you know. And he was just, you know, he was like almost like brought to tears. I think that was that was elation for me. That was that was uh, wonderful. And also, somebody called up a radio station. They wanted to interview my mom. So and. You know, she was in a difficult place in her life, and the fact that somebody wanted to talk to her and shine a light, you know, those those moments brought me elation, and they really had more, you know, they had more to do with people I love than myself. Those were, those were, and I think the first time I worked, I was working on a, a musical many years ago, and the first time it was staged, and I saw, you know, I saw it being performed, and it had been born out of nothing, you know, it born out of a, you know, a, just a fluky, let's write a show. So for me, it seems it, my, my moments of elation have to do with things coming to fruition, I guess, and and sharing them with other people. But those are the ones that pop into my head right off the bat. The theme song to Cheers, is it something that, have you gotten tired of it at all? No, I'm lucky. I like it. I'm really lucky. I like it. I don't, um, no. No, I mean I've had you know I've, I've had I've had songs that I've gotten tired of five minutes after I or, or even songs that I love that I, I'm very very lucky because for me that song wears well and I I just like it so I'm otherwise my life would have been a torture <laughs> really if yeah. you think about it, if you think about it but no I'm 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 happy to say I, I like it and uh, it doesn't grate on me or wear on me or so thank God. <laughs> I like the song too. What do you think it is about the song that people connect with? I just, I guess, loneliness and awkwardness is pervasive, you know, in the world. And probably for all the connectedness of the internet, it's probably gotten more so in the past 20 years. And before that, I just think, I, I think it's like a little hug, you know, I think it's like a little group hug. I don't know. It it just I don't know. It stumbled onto some universality. It stumbled onto some universal need to belong. You know, in a world where that's not always easy. So I think that's the I think that's the appeal of of the song in a general sense. Would you say that you're more extroverted or introverted? It totally depends on the circumstance. When I'm comfortable in my surroundings, I am. I can be very extroverted and very forthcoming. And if I am uncomfortable, which usually has happened to me, sometimes I get in in business settings. Sometimes I I find myself if I if, if I'm with someone that I've been in awe of my whole life or something like that, I I can be very introverted, painfully painfully shy. But I can also be very, you know, the very the opposite way. So it really depends on the circumstances that I'm placed in. You've recorded some some albums yourself, and I was curious to know: is there a song from your discography 
that means the most to you? No, not one. Not one. But there's a there's a few that are of a very, you know, personal nature that I wrote later on when I wasn't... You know, sometimes when you're in the music business and you're a songwriter, sometimes you start thinking about where the song's going to wind up before it's finished, sometimes even before it's started. But, you know, having reached a point in my life where I can just write my heart, because that's what I feel, I wrote, I've written some songs that are really special to me. I just, last year, as I turned 60, uh, found myself just in the in the year or two before leading up to it, writing a bunch of songs, they kind of all dance around that same premise. And they, I find that they're very, very special to me. I wrote a song called Temporary for my best childhood friend, Kevin. And um, people think I wrote it after he died, but I didn't. I wrote it the last time I saw him because I had this profound sense that I was never going to see him again. But somehow, and it was written five years before he died, but you wouldn't know that listening to the song. So I put his name in the title. I called it Temporary for Kevin. It's it's very, very special to me. Maybe one of the most special I've ever written. And that song I mentioned to you earlier that I found in the box when my father was young, man, I really like it. And the journey that it had to be born is very special to me. So those, those, those pop out of recent vintage. And a song I wrote, A Destiny, that I wrote for my grandparents who we were talking earlier, That's, those are really important to me. So those are the three in, in my recent years, in my recent incarnation, that are the most, I think, special to me and mean mean the most to me. And the fact that I still have somewhat new songs at my age when I'm kind of retired that mean that much to me is, a, for me, a real blessing. What did you think about Dolly Parton's treatment of your song, Say Goodnight? Well, I love Dolly Parton. And she can do no wrong in my eyes. So I loved her. And I felt that the arrangement was tepid. You know, when I listened to my original demo, again, you know, I I never I never recorded in my earlier years to a click track. I just kind of and I sometimes I think I wrote songs that were a little rhythmically erratic, although you wouldn't have known it when you listened to my demo because there was no click track. And then I think people took the songs, and this is one instance where I think that happened, and recorded it to a click track. Boom, boom, boom. Kind of metronome. And in that particular case, when I my original demo had a really swaying, kind of freeform emotionality to it. And then when they recorded it with Dolly Parton, I thought she was amazing. But the track to me was a little bit contained, tepid, robotic. That was the disappointment that I had with that record. Although, make no mistake about it, it's still a thrill to me. I'm still very grateful that Dolly Parton recorded one of my songs. Because I love her. (laughs) And what about the Leon Redbone rendition of the song everyone knows from the Mr. Belvedere show? Yeah, I got to like that. You know, I... You know, at first I was, they, that song had been, you know, I was going to record it, but I was already on, like, other shows, and so some, they, they recorded it, and they scrapped it, 
someone else recorded it in Los Angeles and it didn't work. So I, it was kind of like I was called to in like an emergency session in New York, thank goodness. And Leon Redbone was in the studio. I, I don't, I can't speak for him. I don't know how comfortable he was with the song or how he wound up singing it. I think he was a favorite of the producers of the show, and and I don't know how comfortable he was with it or not. But I just remember going in and you know trying to slow it down a little bit, and and uh, I sang it once or twice. Not that I need to teach Leon Redbone anything, but sometimes if you hear the writer of a song sing something, and we got through it. Then the horns were so loud that I called up his wife, who I think was his manager also, and I just said, you know, you, you just might want to get them to lower the... One way or another, it came together. And, you know, it at first it jolted me, but over time, whenever I would hear it, I, I, I came to like it, and I do like it, and I'm, I'm and I'm glad he recorded it. But it was a process for me to get to that place. On your website, it says that you're enjoying a semi-retired life. What is a typical day like for Gary Portnoy? Oh, it's pretty slow and uneventful by design. (laughs) It's pretty slow and uneventful by design. I mean, you know, that being said, last year I I was recording and writing and recording, and it was anything but. I was in the studio two, three days a week. I was working with musicians. I was mixing. I was mastering. But always with a sense that I started slow and laid back, and I would get back to slow and laid back. And it was a very intense, wonderfully active year. But my life before last year and, and at the present time is very you know, slow. I, I, you know, I get up. I have my breakfast. I put on maybe CNN or I go online. I communicate with a few people and I uh, I take a walk around I, I like maple trees I planted a lot of maple trees I check on my maple trees and I used to play with my cat a lot but she passed away a couple of years ago so there's a huge hole in, in that regard and it gets around you know at some point it gets to be lunchtime and I have a couple of restaurants that are favorites around here and I, I'm a person of habits I'll go to the same restaurant and I I uh, you know, it gets to be the afternoon, and I'll watch Judge Judy, and then I take a walk every single day. I take a walk every single afternoon. I don't care if it's raining. I don't care if it's snowing, unless I'm ill, which thankfully has been very rare. You know, if I don't have a cold or, a, you know, put on a raincoat, I'll put on... I take a walk every single day of my life. And then, you know, you shower, and it gets to be around dinner time, so... And then you settle in, you watch some TV. So I, I lead a very, for the most part, it doesn't, you know, I visit with friends. I, I have a 98-year-old aunt who I visit with. and But by and large, my days are unstructured and um, kind of boring. Kind of boring. I like it. Do you think that you will record another album? I don't know. I ran out of songs this time. I was really enjoying recording this time so much that I probably would have kept going, but I ran out of songs. But I'm not a person who writes because I need songs. I spent a lot of years in the music business where I did, you know, it was my job, and I got up every day and I wrote. That's where I really enjoyed co-writing because if I had nothing in my brain, I usually work off a lyric, so I really was grateful to have people throwing lyrics at me, but... You know, I wrote for projects and things I had to do or had to be in by Thursday or Friday. And not being in that position anymore for the past 10 or 20 years, 
I only write when I feel like writing, not because I like need a song or or to record or anything like that. So I ran out of songs when I when I finished my CD, and if I'm blessed enough to get a batch of songs, I'm thinking maybe this time, if, even if I write a song or two that I like, I won't say I won't worry about making an album or a CD or whatever they call it. Maybe I'll just record a song or two because I like them and. You know, that I thought that might be the compromise, you know. But, you know, I hope that I will, but I have I have no way of knowing. I've never known in my life when songs were going to come or not come, unless I was in the music business, you know, pounding them out, as they say in Nashville. Let's pound one out. Unless I was pounding them out, I never knew when I was going to be blessed with music or not. And for me, the best thing is always to... It comes to me. It, it, you know, it, it just says I'm here. And if that were to happen... I would love to record another album because I had a great time last year. But for the moment, it's it's kind of not an option. I was asking myself that same question the other day. Do you think you'll ever record? So that's my long answer. My short answer is I hope so. What is the best thing about being Gary Portnoy? Well, in my life, it's been thus far being in good health. And I've been grateful to... I haven't had to answer to that many people in, in the bulk of my adult life. And, you know, my dad went to work every day for 35 years for a real creep. And But, you know, it paid the bills and we got a phone, our phone bill was paid and he had got a, a, a car. And, you know, I watched my dad do that and I was hoping to never have to do that myself. So... When I think of that, I've been incredible. I've been so grateful that I've been able to, I'm able to live unstructured days, and to follow where they lead me, and uh, that's something that I'm. I think that's the the thing. I'm, I think that's the best thing. I mean, I've also been, you know, I've had wonderful people love me, and I've loved wonderful people, of course, you know, but you know, just in in a larger sense, it's been kind of like the freedom and autonomy that I've enjoyed which some people would hate i mean i have friends my age and they're just they're so the thought of retiring is paining them so much because they so require the structure that they've had and i've been most grateful that i haven't had that structure in my life for anyone out there that's listening wherever they might be what would you say to them totally open-ended god i would just say be grateful I would say find gratitude within yourself as often as you can for whatever you can find it for. And I know that for some people that's a really tall order because life can, you know. (laughs) But just, you know, if I'm speaking just vaguely to a hypothetical person out there, I would say, you know, be grateful to whoever you, you know, whether it's God or the universe, whoever you're, Gratitude. The older I get, that's what it's about. Why is gratitude important? Well, I don't think it's a good thing to take blessings for granted. You know, I think if 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 God blesses you, or I think it's I don't think it's a good thing to get so swept up in life that you don't acknowledge that, or that you take it for granted, or you don't realize how special it is. Yeah. Gary, it's been a great pleasure to talk with you. Hey, me too.
you've been very, very open. Well, I think you've got me on an extrovert. <laughs> you've got me on an extrovert day. <laughs> it was, you didn't have to pull teeth. So how you're glad, you, well, I appreciated your questions as well. So it was, it was really, uh, it was nice. It was enjoyable. I hope so I didn't yammer too much. You did not, not at all. Okay. How do you define Gary Portnoy? Oh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I leave that. I leave that to other people because I, I've been given the impression that I'm a little bit of an anomaly. So I, I've never spent a lot of energy on that. When people say you're an anomaly, do you take that as a compliment? Absolutely. You're an anomaly. Yeah. <laughs> Why would? But oh, thank you. <laughs> I didn't realize you would just bestowing that upon me. Thank you. I appreciate that. I do. That made me smile. For anyone out there, if they want more information, they can visit the website. It's GaryPortnoy.com. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you. Same here, Paul. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it very much. Well, sir, you have a wonderful and very unstructured day. Thank you. <laughs> and you as well. I'll try. Take, take care. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>